Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to, to the book of Genesis chapter 2. We are in the beginning. These foundational chapters, foundational for the Bible and understanding the Bible, but foundational for all humankind. Um, just the first three chapters give us that life before the fall. In fact, if you were to divide the Bible, as some people are prone to do, into uh, sections or dispensations, people will say, I would say there are two, before the fall and after the fall. And we are still before the fall. These are foundational passages for our understanding of many, many um, key institutions that the Lord has ordained and ordered, designed. He has created the heavens and the earth so far in the passages we have looked at in chapter 1, now into chapter 2. Um, over the course of the space of six days, he created these, uh, formed the earth and filled the earth, um, beyond the earth even, but then fills the earth, uh, setting up the sixth day, this long period of creation where the, uh, all these various creatures are made, and then of course the capstone, the crowning creation is man and woman. And we read that in chapter 1. And I will start by reading those two verses again, printed on your, uh, in your insert, on your insert. That will remind us of the big picture. And then we come to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, our main focus. That is the close-up of what happens on day 6 in chapter 1. So I want to see the general reading of it, and then we'll look at the specifics and the passage before us with regard to the creation of man and now woman in verses 18 through 25. This is God's holy word. Please hear as I read. First, Genesis 1, 25 through 27, and then I'll go to Genesis 2. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You created us in your image. Father, we are aware of sin and how it has marred your creation, especially when we read this original creation before the fall, in order that we might better know you, better know ourselves, and ultimately know our Savior. Please give us clarity and understanding about what your word teaches us here. May we be drawn closer to you, and may we fall more deeply in love with our Savior today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned that you might divide the Bible into two parts, before the fall and after the fall. Maybe another tool for helping us understand the flow of the biblical story, how the Bible unfolds, is to think of four themes that flow together. And we're in the first theme, creation. God's creation of everything. And then shortly thereafter, this isn't any kind of a a spoiler, um, the fall happens, which messes up everything about creation in some fashion. And so you have creation and then you have the fall. The Bible tells that truth. And then you have the unfolding plan of God's redemption that's fulfilled in time and space with the second Adam who comes, the Lord Jesus. The first Adam failed at the covenant of works, the second Adam succeeds, and we find ourselves in him for redemption. So creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately consummation, the new heavens and the new earth we await. So we are studying now the creation portion, the ideal, of the model God sets up, his design plan. And shortly thereafter, we will see, but you know all too well, how much the fall impacts it. I know that any time you come to a passage, especially a pre-fall passage about marriage, that it can hurt, especially because nobody here has escaped some sense of pain that's happened in their human relationships, and especially in the marital one being so, so key. It's a challenge consistently for even the people of God, this side of redemption, With the Holy Spirit's aid, we still struggle with some of the things of our past, done to us or we've done. I just want to encourage you again as we open the Word. The Word isn't something we ought to be scared about or stressed over, but recognize it's the truth and that God will give us His aid. His forgiveness is extended to us. We know we're sinners who do not live ideal lives, who rest completely in the finished work of Christ and that we find our comfort in what He's doing in transforming us more and more to His likeness. And part of how we understand what his likeness is and what he is, how he has designed things is by going to the Word and seeing how he established these things. I like to compare it this way. Back in 1986, I remember sitting in my middle school classroom, and they were showing up on a, a movie screen, um, in old technology for sure, um, the blast-off of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And I remember just uh, the terror of it all. Most of us didn't know what happened. We just saw this ball of smoke go up and the solid rocket boosters shooting off and debris coming down into the ocean. It was after weeks and weeks of analysis um, and examination about what happened when that Challenger disaster happened in 1986. But the debris from the spaceship all fell down into the Atlantic Ocean right below in Cape Canaveral. It took them almost a year to get all the parts they finally got. And they brought them to a warehouse, and they tried to do assemb- assemble those parts because they had a hypothesis for how it blew up, but they weren't sure. And by putting it together, they might be able to find what exactly went, get, went wrong. And this is a process that took months and months and months. And at some point, they stalled. Even though they can tell what they were making and the pieces made some sense, they went together at some level, it was hard to picture what it was supposed to be. 
But they had the Discovery and the Atlantis parked there as well. The Atlantis was the newest of them. It was uh, built in 1985, so it was almost finished and ready to fly in 1986. So by using those two perfected models that were almost the same as Challenger, they were able to piece together hanging pieces and such. They didn't find every last piece, but they found enough to really um, rule out at least one of the hypotheses as they were developing them. You have to have that original perfected form to appreciate um, really what the disaster of what's happened to the other, and then also how it might get pieced together, how it might look as it comes back together, especially in an imperfect state. In some ways, we can envision human relationships, especially the marital relationship, um, as being impacted and affected the same way as a, a catastrophic explosion. So in order to piece together by God's Spirit, what He's calling us to, especially as Christians, to see that reformed as best as it can be this side of glory, we have to see that original, recognize what the design was, what the plan was, and that will help us piece together what we have now, or formulate it in a way that looks more like that ideal that God has laid out. Of course, only by His grace, and on the other side of the redemption applied by Christ. So we look to Genesis 2 some of the most important verses for humanity, whether humanity recognizes it or not. It sets up a pattern or design that when not followed leads to misery and disappointment and difficulty. That's a standard across the board, whether it's by ignorance or willful disobedience. When we don't follow the design that God lays forth, we find great trouble, great suffering and great strife that rolls, comes from it. So it's with humility that we look at a passage like this, recognizing how far afield humanity is, ourselves included, because of the impact of the fall. Let's turn together to the passage and recognize as we're turning there what mess, what a mess mankind is today. The human relationships that are a mess, um, all the various facts of the world around us are a mess. When you consider original creation, it's an amazing thing that people could starve on this planet with all that God has uh, provided, yet that shows the effect of the fall. That resources would ever be scarce, it shows the effect of the fall. That people hate each other and turn against each other and make war against other, each other evidences the effect that mankind is a mess as a re result of the fall. People are confused about the things that are addressed in this passage, whether it be our gender, our sexuality, our marriage, our relationships. All of this um, we will all find some struggle with because the effects of the fall. We are unable to think completely clearly on these topics except for the grace of God helping us by His Spirit and showing us by His Word how He has designed these things and what He's moving these things towards ultimately by His work of sanctification onto glory. Well, the story doesn't end in a mess. That's not the, the mess, or at least that's not the way the Scripture lays it out. It points to Jesus, the second Adam, where we can find that redemption in Him, and we can start to see things um, restored or reconstructed, not in fullness this side of glory, but certainly a taste of that as we move along in the process of spiritual growth that He takes us through. Con creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This is the thematic flow of Scripture. So as redeemed people, we do well to study God's ideal that is laid out for us. Kent Hughes says about these verses we're looking at, the instruction here is primary and vital to all human existence. I would only tweak that a little to give you this proposition. The instruction here ordered and designed by God is foundational. It's foundationally vital to all of human existence. If you look at the passage real quickly as we begin, 
the first verse 18 that we're focusing on, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We see a foundational part of God's plan and design there as he addresses the man's aloneness. Down to verse 21, what does he do? He causes a deep sleep to fall on the man. He doesn't take any more from the earth, from the man he takes. And so from the man, while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You know, there's several truths, foundational truths, that we find in these verses of Scripture. There are relational truths, familial truths, societal truths. All of it important and foundational for us. First, we see that human beings are created as social beings, meant to be in relationship with one another. And then more focused on that reality or that feature of humanity is the marriage relationship and how God makes it uniquely complementary. Uh, It's meant to fit one another and offset one another in a perfect union and team to do the thing that God's called, which is to subdue, to tend and keep the earth, to spread out and manage it for God's glory, to be his representatives everywhere. Also, we can see some specifics about marriage that are important for us to recognize, especially um, in a timeless way, is varying societies struggle with reality on these things, or they have difficulty because they don't know what's been revealed. We assume it's just all natural for people to think of in these ways, but we underestimate how much the fall has messed up our ability to reason. And so we find much about the specifics of the marriage relationship that are important for us in this passage. Let's begin by looking at verse 18 when we see, first of all, something that's bolstered throughout the Scriptures, but laid very clearly here. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, it's clearly a reference to the first marriage, but it's also a reference to the fact of mankind being made as social beings, individuals made to relate with others of our own kind, our own species, that is. The animals were not enough for Adam. He went through naming them all and recognized clearly he was still alone. We had all sorts of animals. He was alone, though, because he didn't have a counterpart. He didn't have a person. If you notice the wording in verse 18 closely, think back to our study of the first days of creation. In days two through five of creation, each day when the the creating work was done, there was the capstone statement, and it was good. He looked at the work of his hands, and he characterized the stuff that he made, the things that he put into order and design. They were good. It was good, God said, in days two through five. Even after he created quite a bit in day six, he says, after making the beasts of the earth and the livestock, it was good, verse 35 of chapter one. But now we come to verse 18 of chapter two, a close-up on day six, and we get to see behind the scenes a little bit. When we read the general view in, in chapter one, it just said it was good when he was done creating. It was very good when man and woman was created but it didn't specify the creation of the man and then the woman. Here we have that. And now look at the very special wording. It's important. In verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good. This stands out to us because of how many times he says it is good. It is not good that the man should be alone. So aloneness is not good. So I will make a helper fit for him. 
We, we read that it is good when man and woman finally created, but it's not good that man should be alone. It goes to the heart of who we are as social beings. There is no one for him to have companionship with. There is no one to compliment him, as it were. There are plenty of creatures, but none suited just for him. The passage makes clear how he is relating with God's creation as God's king representative, small k. Adam is the vice regent of God. And notice what it says in verse 19, describing the others who were there with Adam and then Eve eventually. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Who knows how many animals we're talking about, how many creatures we're talking about. All created, Adam sees them, and God brings them in such a way, pre-fall intellect and abilities, mysterious to us to wrap our minds around how the capacity could even be there to handle all that. But God does it, and he brings them in front of the man. And so it, it does two things. One, it gives Adam his first taste of being a vice regent, uh, being a one who exercises dominion as he names or calls the animals by name. So he's recognizing all that's been created. There's an inventory of such about what he has been called by God to do. But at the same time, he's being made aware that there's no one who's a counterpart to him. There's no one that could be his true companion as one like him. And he's recognizing this, no doubt. Maybe even, as much as you can pre-fall, feeling how can this all be done? to manage all of this as he sees them all brought before. It says, whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Granted this oversight, he names them, he sees them come in front, and he's recognizing something. James Boyce makes this observation in his commentary. Adam undoubtedly saw saw this parade of animals and realized that if he was to have a companion, the companion would have to be specially created by God and in the image of God as he was. The point is, at first level, these creatures could not provide what human companionship, human social interaction provides. There would be a partnership, there would be a need for people to subdue, rule, and multiply, as God said. There was a radical discontinuity between humankind and animal kind. God did not take an animal and turn that animal into a man or a woman. We see that mankind is God's special creation, created in his image, given a special task as God's representatives. These creatures that Adam named, they are not created in God's image. They're important because God created them. They have a purpose and a value, and man understood this. But he didn't have someone for himself to have companionship with. You see what his dilemma is in verse 20. He gave names to all the livestock, to every beast of the field, and so on. But for Adam, there was not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So at very base level, we learn something about human beings here. We are social beings. We are created to be in relationship with other human beings. He did not create us to be solitary beings but designed us to be social beings. Life in society is not something added on for the human person. It stems from an important dimension intrinsic to human nature that we see here at the very beginning. It's one of the reasons why uh, many of us felt so sharply that long period of time where we could not have personal interaction. And I mean real FaceTime, not on the screen FaceTime. 
uh, we are created to be in each other's presence, in the presence of others. In fact, the other side of redemption, after Christ comes uh, into our lives even, and we have a new appreciation for our renewed humanity, we long for other people even more. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. By design, we are placed in relationship to help one another. We're social beings in this respect. In Ephesians 2, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, meant to have relationship together with others. In Romans 12, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Apart from the marriage relationship, human beings need relationships with each other as we are social beings. We thrive in this environment. We come together. We cooperate in this environment. And together, we can act out the mission God gives us in pre-fall, that is to tend and keep the earth, to spread out and represent God, represent God everywhere. This was his initial plan as it unfolds. But there's something much more specific from the passage that we'll now spend time on. And this has to do with the very special relationship that formulates the family. This is the marriage relationship that we have laid out for us so clearly in Genesis chapter 2. It's also the basis for everything that comes after insofar as teaching concerning marriage goes in the Bible, in the Old Testament and into the New. Jesus and Paul draw directly from what uh, what Genesis 2 says. And where all the messed up marriages are in the Old Testament after the fall, they still find their appeal back to the model. And we know why they're messed up and why there were problems that came from them because they're not in line with the way God ordained things to be or ordered them to be. So it's very foundational for us what we have in verses 18 through 25. Let's focus closely now on this, this foundation really of all to human life and society. Verse 18 of our passage, something is said that needs to be added to paradise. Paradise was established with Adam, and he was given the covenant of works, don't eat from this tree. Um, and if you don't eat, you'll be in a state of obedience and you'll live. But now what we have, if, it couldn't, if you didn't think it could get better than all that God had created and set up, he creates woman. And it gets much better. It's enhanced now. Now mankind can actually carry out this mission. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. God's very clear about what the woman is created to do and be. For Adam, there was not found a helper, verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam or Adam means man or the man. The first man, Adam is his name. Of course, he's given the name, she's given the name Eve, the mother of all the living. So Adam and Eve here created. And she is to be made into a helper fit for him. Now, let's be clear about what each word means very carefully. Helper and fit. What do those two things mean? Helper does mean to take on an assisting role. He's given a certain commission, and now he can carry it out because God will give him supreme assistance in the one he'll create to be his counterpart. So a helper in this respect, she comes along and helps with all the capacities that she has been given. The helper is not less in any kind of essence, but there's a specific role that she takes. They have a definite role, both of them do, and together, as God's image bearers, they're able to carry out this mission that God has given them to tend and keep the earth. 
to be clear. Helper doesn't mean less of a person. In fact, the word is used for God in the Old Testament multiple times. In Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. So in that context, Israel was told to do something, to stand up for God with, through the temple and through the conquering of the nations that were coming against them. And so they call upon God, who gave them the mission, to be their helper. So he, he's God. He's not less than them. But he has a specific role when they ask for it, and that is to help them do the thing he's called them to. God calls mankind. He creates man and he creates woman, and they have roles, and God creates now a helper fit for him so that they together can do the thing that God has called them to do as a family. Now, what about the phrase fit for him? Helper, fit for him. Literally, fit for him here means corresponding to him, matching in some way according to the opposite of him, fits him in some way. Now, there's enough unity of mind for sure, but there's things that are different about one another that will carry out the thing that God's called them to do. Franz Delich, who's one of the great Old Testament commentators, says this is an essential quality that will be his fitting complement. So, they're essentially on level equal essence but there is a certain role taken that she's designed for and he's designed for in working together pre-fall. There's not a problem with this. In fact, it's a glorious thing that has all the promise of potential you can imagine. Look at how the wording is, the poetic, beautiful wording of how the woman was created to describe this, pro- this mysterious process. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a, a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs. This is a show of equality. And notice, didn't take from his foot, didn't take from his head, took from his side. And so he takes the rib of Adam and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, wow. That's not in the Hebrew, but you can imagine. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He celebrates this completion um, that God alerts him to through the process of naming the animals and recognizing that he is alone, but he's not alone any longer. And she meets that need. And it's a beautiful language of covenant. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What a statement of high value, covenant commitment to his counterpart. God does not make the woman as inferior to the man. This is not a statement of strength of the man to the weakness of the woman. This is a statement of fulfillment that together we are one in what God has called us to do. I love what Martin Luther is said to have said, James Boyce reports this. Luther thought Eve would have been as strong, fast, clear-sighted, and brilliant as the man. In addition to that, she must have had a beauty and grace that excelled him. What a woman, Boyce says. In her pristine glory, Eve would have made Wonder Woman look sickly. God makes a human being who is uniquely suited to complement him. When I used to describe my wife for people who had not seen her yet, I said, if you can imagine pre-fall Eve, you're almost there. God makes a human being who is a helper fit for him, a helper who fit him. The woman was made to be his corresponding counterpart. 
Fit for him to carry out what? The function of humanity, which is to tend and keep, to subdue and rule, to exercise dominion. And notice the value of the woman is not placed in the fact that she can have babies. It's a valuable feature, but it's that she's with the man. And together, by God's design, that would happen by both of them. But her value is in being created in the image of God with man. And that's where a family starts. It's not when you have children. It's when people come together in marriage, a family begins. And you add children by God's grace, but the family is here. The foundation of all society laid out here. And it's a complementary uh, relationship very clearly laid out before us. It's interesting, the first human words recorded in the Bible, the last of the words recorded before the fall, before sin enters, the first human words, this at last is bone of my bones. The first human words are about the creation of the woman, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam was ready for his counterpart. Now the marriage relationship in its complementary form is there established. And joining together, they are able to do the work God has called them. One other note that it's important when we recognize the, the, the equality that men and women have in that essential level. We know it because they're created in the image of God. Both are. But something else is interesting. When it relates to the application of the redemption of Jesus which was announced in the time in the first century when women were given very low standing. But in Christianity, based on this marriage foundation of this equality between man and woman in their marriage, different roles but equality in who they were, when they're redeemed, women or children are not given less of a redemption status. In fact, Paul is careful against a society that would not have agreed with this view to say the following in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Because we're all in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, all one in Christ Jesus. That's revolutionary to say that, to set a proper anthropology out. Now, it's not to say that there are not different roles that happen. But as it relates to essence, the Bible is clear from the beginning, and it holds the same theme throughout and gives us uh, the guideposts that we can look at. Granted, because of the effects of the fall and the abuse between people and the way things happen, we recognize a really messed up situation. But it's not because of the design, it's because of the, the sin that has entered in, which hopefully drives us all the more to Christ. But now we move, continuing through the passage, to some other important details that we learn about marriage, this very foundational um, relationship in human society, in human existence. Uh, three things that I'll note for you in verse 24 and verse 25 that you probably have seen. Marriage, first of all, is between a man and a woman. This is a heterosexual relationship. It's, be, it's an exclusive relationship. It's supposed to be one man and one woman. Um, you'll say, well, what about those cases in the Old Testament where they, people married more than one wife? It was a sin. It was not right. God tolerated it for a period, but one of the great benefits of redemption is by the Holy Spirit to give us uh, more clarity in, in how we act and break away from cultures that are sinful. Um, much more could be said, but it's not okay because Abraham had multiple wives. Um, this, this was an aberration, and it led to great heartache for generations. It always does. Any aberration of the plan he lays out leads to terrible heartache. 
And that's what we see unfold in the Scripture. The Scripture tells the true story of creation, fall, redemption. So we see that there, that it's exclusive, one man and one woman. Also, we'll note that it's meant to be a permanent bond before the fall. Death comes in, so obviously the bond is broken that way. There are other ways in which it can be broken, this side of the fall. We recognize that. Jesus recognizes it. But we should step back and look at what the design was to appreciate why it's so important and appreciate that we're, it's just doing a, an unfavorable or a, a, a not an accurate lip service to say it doesn't matter that much how bad off marriage is in a given society. Everything flows from that. Everything comes from that. There's not one problem you can point to that we see lived out in a culture that does not come back to that essential relationship. But more could be said in a different way in a different time about that. Let's look at these three points. That marriage is heterosexual, exclusive, and it's a permanent bond. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Again, covenantal language used. Leaving father and mother means under one household, under the care, the God-ordained care of father and mother, but leaves that, breaks contract with that, you might even say, by design, and then holds fast, cleaves to his wife, forms a new one. So this is a man with a woman. Now, the Hebrew word for man means man. The Hebrew word for wife means wife. Not complicated. A man and a woman. And this is what is called upon as the union for marriage. He leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a capturing verse to say that there's nothing between them. There's nothing they could be ashamed of or guilty about. And nobody this side of glory can say that completely. Not even the best marriage can say that absolutely, that there's not any aspect of shame or guilt that we have between each other. But the state in the original state of things, this is how it was. So first we see it's between a man and a woman by God's design. I also want you to notice it's exclusive. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So it's making a point to be exclusive or separated or distinct from father and mother. He'll leave. That's, so it's going to be an exclusive relationship and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. This is uh, one of many arguments for why the Scripture is laying out clearly it's supposed to be one man with one woman, one flesh. You can't have four people make one flesh. One together, comp complementary, the way God's designed it. You have a one flesh union. The marriage relationship here is by God's original design. In this beautiful term, one flesh, it means more than the physical union. In fact, the physical union, the sexual union, is what captures or puts its function on display, if you will, in the sense of procreation and then the union you share with one another. But that's not the foundation. That's the capstone. The relationship is a joining of two people in a, in a sacred union that only God can cause to have happen. Um, this is what's being spoken of when we get this term, one flesh. Uh, we have all sorts of distortions of that today by the way we behave or the way we do things culturally and such, uh, but we shouldn't lose the fact um, that this is meant to really be a combining of personalities. Uh, one flesh 
it's been said by one commentator, Leupold, becoming one flesh involves the complete identification of one personality with the other in a community of interests and pursuits, a union consummated in the sexual union. So we see this specially devised and designed relationship between two people in marriage, man and woman, to so identify each other's personalities that we can't imagine doing anything without consulting the other. In fact, isn't it true that many of the issues we have in the marital relationship is because we don't consult one another? Uh, we do our own thing or we're self-driven too often. We see why this might cause problems to the original design. I want you to notice also this is meant to be a permanent bond. Hold fast to his wife is not the language of, you know, try her out. Just a little bit, you know, see how it works. See how, test out marriage. It's hold fast. Hold for dear life to your wife, and they shall become one flesh. Clearly, one flesh is not meant to be ripped apart, not in its design anyways. So we have this union of these souls meant to be, by God's standard, something that lasts forever. So much can be said from these important passages. I don't want to cloud it further by adding other things because we'll have time to address different issues as we walk through Genesis. But I want to summarize by noting some of the many reasons why a biblical understanding of marriage is important for our lives and for society. Uh, we can't control everything society does, but at least the household of God should do its best, our best, to uphold and celebrate what God's Word says. Whatever our given situation is, wherever you find yourself, you can celebrate and promote and uphold marriage the way the Bible lays it out in your own ways, just how we all support it going forward. Here are a few reasons. This is the first one. First and foremost, it's ordained by God just this way. If there were no other reasons, just the fact that he ordains it is enough. He's the creator and he creates marriage. And so that on its own, if nothing else was true beneficially, we could say that that would be enough to follow what he has said. Also, we notice very practically that marriage is the basic building block for society. Um, where there's problems here, everything else. Where there's blessings here, everything else will benefit. It's the way mankind propagates the human race to spread and multiply, to tend and keep. This is the way God ordains for children to come forth and other families to eventually come forth. It provides stability for children as they are growing. It provides stability for the wider society with families doing that work. It is the base level human structure. Also, in marriage, we find great relational fulfillment as you come to know someone better than anyone else. It provides for the healthy living out of sexuality. It's designed for that. That's actually meant to enhance marriage. The problem so often today is the way it gets billed is go after this experience to feel good and do this thing. It's taken out of its proper place. It's misused. And eventually people come to realize it, whether they admit it or not. But it does a lot of damage in the process. Whereas when it's used in the right way, it actually works to enhance the relationship that God has called together. And so this is a healthy working out of this in our lives. It also proves for general human flourishing, where you have strong families in general, even in a fallen society where the families are generally stronger, more people flourish. There are safety nets for people who are not in families or have something occur where that gets disrupted. And then families can help with that. Even in this side of the fall, we see how beneficial it is to have God's model for families working itself out. When you struggle as a person, 
with even any of the things we're talking about. Like, this is a struggle for me. I, I struggle with this aspect of my humanity. It's at it's your family level that you'll get the first level of care and consideration. It's still the family level. Even when we struggle with understanding what it all means. That's where we find the love first. Even as messed up as we can be as families, this is where we find our first level of security. The first display of God's love for us. This also provides human companionship. We also see the mutual support that can come between husband and wife. It teaches us something of selflessness. Martin Luther is the one who said, for all the classes he ever taught, for all the preachers he ever trained, for all the high-level Christians he ever known, it was his wife Katie who did the most in helping him be more like Christ because marriage is this great sanctifier. But you know, the most important features about marriage these are all important, but the most important ones possibly, they all relate to the person of Christ, and there's at least three of them I'll mention. So the biblical marriage model, first of all, is something that Jesus Christ himself believed and assumed. So if you trust in Christ, you believe in Jesus, this is what he believed about marriage, what we read in Genesis. Multiple times he repeated it when he was teaching, usually trying to correct some um, some model that was off the biblical model. One of the most famous statements he made is in Matthew 19. He said to the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus says something else. What therefore God has joined together, let no, let not man separate. It's usually the last line I say in a wedding. What God has brought together, let no man tear asunder, I say it. Sounds better in the King James. Because this is God's doing. Jesus says it's God's doing. So Christ believed it. The biblical model of marriage is what Jesus promoted. But there's something else that Jesus does with marriage. He uses the terminology of marriage to describe himself in Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The picture of the final consummation is one of the bridegroom Christ waiting for us, the bride, his church, that he's purified. And so Jesus uses marital terminology to give us an appreciation for how deep and serious the relationship is. In Luke 5, among many other places, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This was Jesus predicting when he was going to go die on the cross and go to heaven. And so he's telling the bridegroom wouldn't always be with him. He calls himself the bridegroom. Finally, when we get to the New Testament, and we've had, there's a lot more Bible between the New Testament and where we're studying in Genesis, many more examples of how marriage works itself out. But none crown the occasion or the topic more than what Paul does in Ephesians 5. Think of this passage read in light of the creation itself. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, we know what that means. It's not an authoritative, beat-down type, lording over mindset that sin takes over. It's the one who's the helper fit. We recognize how that works when we take the, to the totality of what the Scripture teaches. But I go on. The head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? His body, the church, and it's himself its Savior. He's a Savior. Okay, now as the church submits to Christ, 
So also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Well, who do we submit to? Christ. Why? Because he gives himself for us, and he's the one who loves us and cares for us. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did he get, love the church? He gave himself up for her. So she should be more important than anything to you. The most valuable possession that you have, if you call it a possession, it's a partner. It's a relationship that's been given to you as a stewardship to watch over, to care for, to love, to protect, to cherish. All these things that Jesus does for the church. God gives the church to Jesus and he sanctifies it. He, he saves it. He protects it. God gives us wives. We do the same for them. That's what is displayed in Ephesians connected to what is in the original creation. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See the picture that comes from biblical marriage used by Paul here to show Christ in the church is critical to understanding who Christ is and who the church is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, he quotes directly from Genesis, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. We know the mystery of marriage. It's profound, no doubt about it. This mystery is profound. But what he's talking about, he says and clarifies, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. This is the mystery. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Summarizing the importance of the verses that we have just looked at in Genesis 2. This instruction before us is designed and ordered by God, and it's foundationally vital to all human existence. Let's pray. Father, when we read these, this pre-fall portion of your word, we are certainly struck by how impacting the entrance of sin has, has made its way into our relationships. Uh, we do not find ourselves um, adhering to this perfect ideal that we have seen laid out in Adam and Eve. We do find ourselves grieving over our sin in this area of marriage. At the same time, we praise you for the gift of human relationships. We praise you for the complementary marriage relationship as we see laid out here in your word. I thank you for how you have designed husbands and wives to function. I pray that through redemption uh, that we would taste some of this restoration of the way, God, you have ordered these things. Through the sanctifying work of your spirit, based on the finished work of Christ, that we might taste and see how good you are in this gift of marriage especially. Lord, I pray that you comfort those who come through difficult marriage situations. Give them a sense of your deep love for them and ways in which they uh, too may be married again or if it's your will that they are single, that they have great joy over what they see here read and are able to speak into the lives of others and loving them. For those who are not yet married, who are looking forward to marrying someday, I pray, O oh Lord, that you give them great clarity about what your word calls them to, and to not be impatient, but to rest in your standards for these things, and your provision for these things. Lord, we need your help to resist selfishness and self-preservation. We need your spirit to give us Christ-likeness in our marriages. Please do this work in your church so that we might display the ultimate marriage picture that we just left off on, Christ and the church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals. 
we will turn to 420. We'll stand and sing at the, high, the Lamb's High Feast. We sing as the elders and ushers come forward to prepare the table. We'll stand as we sing. <laughs>